Amen. We were singing there about the love over God's word all through Psalm 119. Now hear the words of God, the words of Jesus. From John chapter 16, I'll be reading verses 5 through 15. These are the words of God. But now I go away to him who sent me. And none of you ask me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I depart, I will send him to you. And when he has come, he will convict the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. Of sin because they do not believe in me. Of righteousness because I go to my Father and you see me no more. Of judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. However, when he, the spirit of truth, has come, he will guide you into all, all truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will tell you things to come. He will glorify me, for he will take of what is mine and declare it to you. All things that the Father has are mine. Therefore, I said that he will take of mine and declare it to you. Thus far, the reading of God's word. Let's ask his blessing now. Father, this passage from your word and from the mouth of your Son speaks of the work of the Holy Spirit upon those who hear your word. And therefore, we ask that, therefore, we ask that you would open eyes and ears, hearts and souls through the preaching of, the, of your word this morning. Make this an effectual time for the work of your gospel in every heart. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Please be seated. Well, we continue through the farewell departure of Jesus to his disciples just hours before his arrest, and we come now to the portion where he returns to the topic of his impending departure. He's already spoken to them about that he is going to be leaving. He returns to that topic and their sorrow, their trouble that they are feeling with regard to the fact that he's going to be leaving. In uh, 15 verse 26, he, uh, we're told that the Father will send the Helper. And then in our passage here in verse 7 of chapter 16, we're told that the Son will be sending the, will be sending the, the Helper, the Holy Spirit. Um, and these verses together are, are really the verses that argue for what is known as the Filioque Clause in the Western Nicene Creed, which states that the Holy Spirit will proceed or does proceed from the Father and the Son. That Filioque, that is Latin for and of the Son, or of the Son. And so, um, uh, that is, uh, the, the, these passages are how we get the doctrine of the fact that the Holy Spirit proceeds from both the Father and the Son. And, and while that is true, that's not going to be the point of the sermon this morning. And it's incidental, I think, to the main point um, of this passage of what Jesus is getting at. The Holy Spirit, he is going to discuss, the Holy Spirit will be sent to the disciples, to the apostles. And through him, the world will be convicted the word will be completed and Jesus will be glorified. That's really what's going to come out of this passage. The, the, um, the world is going to be convicted. The word is going to be completed and Jesus will be glorified. So he says to them again here in verse 5, your sorrow has filled your heart. Your, your hearts are troubled, as he had said earlier. Jesus had meant everything to them and they had left all to follow him. For three years, they had followed him around at great expense, I'm sure, for their reputation and uh, for their vocations. And, and, and in these previous verses, verses 18 through 20 of chapter 15, he just got through telling them, now I'm going to be departing, and I'm, I, as I'm going to be persecuted, and so are you after I depart. And he's leaving them. 
He's leaving them in the midst of a promise that great persecution is going to come upon them. They might have thought to themselves, why doesn't he stay here and protect us? Why is he going to leave us just as things are going to get so hard? It's hard on this side of the cross um, and the resurrection and all the events following for us probably to sympathize with how the disciples felt at that time. We, we already know what was going to happen, that not only would there be the crucifixion, but also the resurrection. We, we understand that he also was going to ascend and be glorified as he was exalted to his father's right hand. But what would it have been like those hours before his, his arrest to hear, I'm going to leave you, and by the way, they're going to kill you after they kill me. Have a great time. It would have been hard. It would have been hard to sympathize. It's hard for us to understand how they would have felt, the confusion that they would have been experiencing at that moment. And yet, how often for us do the words from Romans 8, we know all things work together for good, oftentimes confound us and fall flat upon us in the midst of our own present circumstances. We might say we believe, we say we believe that verse, we really do. I have no idea how that's going to come true in the circumstance I find myself in. And I'm confounded. I'm, I'm distressed. I'm full of sorrow because of, of all that might be before me. Maybe that gives us some hint as to how they were feeling at that moment with these words that Jesus would say. And so when we go through the, those kinds of things in such times, remember how much the disciples could not see, could not understand at that moment and yet in just days, it would all become clear. It, in just days, all that Jesus was saying would become so very, very clear. And notice also that Jesus says, now I go away. As though what, what he's talking about is not necessarily what they are going to do to him, but rather what he always intended he was going to do. Now I go away. Not, not now, they're going to send me away. Now they're going to, to ruin my life. Now they're going to kill me. But now I go away. Well, it was exactly as he had promised in, earlier in John chapter 10. He said, therefore, my father loves me because I lay down my life. I lay down my life that I may take it again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down myself. I have power to lay it down and I have power to take it again, the command I have received from my Father. Jesus clearly teaches that none of this was out of his control, but that he had the power to lay down his life and decided to do so for us, for you, and that he had power to raise it back up again, having defeated death, and for our justification, for our resurrection. And he did, he does, it's for us. Whatever violence was used to remove Christ, whatever violence we see in the story of, the, of, 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 of uh, crucifying the Lord Jesus Christ, it was actually his voluntary work at his perfectly appointed time. When the Holy Spirit falls, when the apostles are out preaching, they are the ones who seeing this will say as it's recorded in Acts 4, for truly against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, with the Gentiles and the people of Israel were gathered together to do whatever your hand, God, whatever your hand and your purposes determined before to be done. All things work out together for good for Christ. And all things work out together for all of Christ's people. 
But we see that as we see, first of all, how God was at work, how Jesus was completely in control in the most heinous, the most wicked, the most nefarious act the world has ever seen. An innocent man, completely, the only innocent man, betrayed, crucified, and, and cast away by his people, both by Jews and Gentiles alike. And, and Jesus was doing this voluntarily. He was appointing it to be done uh, uh, on his own with full authority and understanding of all that was going to take place. So he's speaking to them and, 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 all, and this sorrow fills their heart and he understands. He understands also as, as a fellow human how hard this is going to be and he encourages them with these next verses. Nevertheless, he says, verse 7, nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It's to your advantage that I go away. It's better for you that I go away. Imagine those words. Um, you're you're, you're Jesus' close friend. You've been walking with him for years. And he says, it's going to be better for you if I go away. Uh, imagine your closest friend moving out of town. It's probably happened to all of us at some point. And they're going away. And them saying to you, it's going to be better I have something even better. That's what Christ is saying to his friends. It's going to be to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I depart, I will send him to you. So he understands their sorrow. And he, and he says to them, but if I go, then the helper, the comforter, the Holy Spirit will come. And if I don't go, he gives this, this idea. If I don't go, then the helper will not come. Or almost will not be able to come. It's a strange verse, yet we wonder, at first glance, it isn't clear at all why the Holy Spirit could not come until after Christ departed. In, in the way that Christ is talking about, the Holy Spirit is going to come. Why, why could the Holy Spirit not come while Jesus was there on the earth? Well, I, I don't believe that the problem is some kind of strange metaphysical problem, the, that the Spirit and the Son could not both be present upon the earth. I, I don't think, I'm not, I'm not convinced that's all at, at all what the problem is. By departed, as, as Jesus uses this word departed, he, he probably means far more than just his going away, but all that would take place in and through that departure. The reigning work of Jesus through his Holy Spirit which is what is going on in, in the procession now of the Holy Spirit. The reigning work of Jesus could not be fully inaugurated until his vicarious death, his justifying resurrection, and his coronating ascension and exaltation had occurred. It's not just that God had a, had a plan in mind and the plan was enough. I have a plan to save the world. I am going to be able to forgive sinners. I am going to be able to bring them, make them holy, bring them into my presence. It, it's, it was not enough for God to just simply think of doing that, to plan to do that. It had to be done. It had to be done in time and space. There had to be the sending of Christ, the incarnation of the Son of God, to be made a man, fully man to live a life without sin, and then to be crucified, to, to really be killed, bleed and suffer and die and be buried, and then be exalted in his resurrection and ascension and enthronement. 
It could not just be a plan. It really had to happen. And it really did happen. And when that happened, that begins the holy and righteous and victorious reign of Jesus Christ, King of kings and Lord of lords, sitting on the throne over all of heaven and earth by means of his spirit that he sends forth with his Father. That's what he's referring to. If I don't depart and accomplish all of those things, then the reigning rule through the Holy Spirit cannot take place. So it's going to be better that I leave now, that I accomplish what I came to do. And the world will be a completely different place. This world, a completely different place because of it. We live in a very different world than the world that existed before the incarnation and crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus Christ. We live in a different world. Listen to Paul in 2 Corinthians 5. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Now all things are of God who has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, that God was in Christ reconciling the world reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses to them, and has committed to us the word of reconciliation. So he's reconciled us, and he's committed us, committed to us the word of, re of reconciliation, the spirit-inspired word of his reconciliation to the world. In other words, we're, uh, and we're going to see this, God has given us not only words to speak, but the power of the Holy Spirit behind and in those words to do this work of reconciling fully and completely the world to Christ. Because he goes on to say in, in that passage in 2 Corinthians, Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God were pleading through Paul, through preachers, through Christians upon this earth, ambassadors for Christ, as though God were pleading through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. Be reconciled to God. That's what, you are, that's what you are here in life and word and deed. That's what we are doing as, as Christ's ambassadors. We are pleading with the world around us. Be reconciled. Be reconciled to God. We implore you for this on Christ's behalf, to his glory. Be reconciled to God. For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. That could not have been stated had Jesus Christ not departed in the way he departed, in the work that he accomplished in his departure. That could not be stated, and it could not be stated in the power of his sent Holy Spirit unless he left. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it's to your advantage that I go away. The outpouring of the Holy Spirit would change the power of the message and the change the power within the ambassadors with that, marriage, with that message going forth. And this is now what Jesus describes. What is that message? What is that work that has been given to us? He says in verse 8, and when he has come, when the Holy Spirit has come, 
He will convict the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. And he breaks those open. Let's look at just that verse for just a moment here. When the Holy Spirit comes, Jesus says he will convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. The word there in the Greek is elenko. And while elenko does have the sense of bringing a shaming conviction, so listen to the verse again, and, and, you, and you, you read it, and you hear it, and, and you think of the shame of the conviction of sin, and the shame of the conviction of righteousness that you don't have, and, and the shame before the judgment of God, this conviction that comes. And, and, and while elenko does have this sense of bringing a shaming conviction, I think Jesus is emphasizing another point, another importance within that word itself. Remember, he's saying, I'm going away, and I'm going to send the Holy Spirit, and it's good that I'm sending the Holy Spirit. Why is it good? Can I make, make everybody feel bad? Well, that, that doesn't make sense. No, because I'm going to convict in a convincing way. The, the word elenko is, is translated very broadly in a number of different ways, to rebuke, um, to convince, to exhort. It, it's, it's translated a number of different ways. And, and I think Jesus here is making a point that this activity that the Holy Spirit is going to do is so wonderful that it surpasses his physical presence with them. It's translated uh, in, in the New King James, it's translated convince instead of convict in both 1 Corinthians 14.24 and 2, uh, 2 Timothy 4.2. So for instance, in 1 Corinthians 14, with regard to prophecies, Paul says, but if all, prophes- but if all prophesy and an unbeliever or an uninform- uninformed person comes in, he's convinced by all, this, this uttering forth of the word of God, he is convinced, there's the word, Elenko, he's convinced by all, he's convicted by all. That's actually a different Greek word. So Elenko is there used, he is convinced. So the conviction is God is right. The, the conviction is an opening of the eyes. The, uh, the conviction is of, of taking the scales of unbelief off and, and, and revealing what God has to say about these things. So at Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit came, Peter preached the word. And here's what the conviction looked like. It says, they were cut to the heart and said, men and brethren, what shall we do? So there was shame, but there was a convincing that what he had to say about Christ was true and a drive to go do right now, to go, what do I need to do to be right with God? They were convinced and convicted. So, Jesus says, and when he has come, he will convict, he will convince the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. So, it's clear that the bringing of the message of the gospel, that Jesus is the Son of God, that we all stand condemned in our sin, that his death provided the only payment for those sins, and that we must call on him in faith to be saved, is frankly an impossible message to convey and convince the world by human means. I remember laughing at that message as a young teenager, thinking that was a stupid message, not, not worth applying, not worth believing. To unbelieving hearts, to dark, darkened hearts, the, the message that you are sinful and that you are going to stand before the judgment of God and that you are going to be condemned forever because of, because of your refusal to believe and call upon the Lord Jesus Christ, that Jesus is in fact the Son of God, that this carpenter's son uh, 2,000 plus years ago li- living halfway around the world from you are actually matters in your life 
is really tough to convince other people to believe. It's really tough for it to make sense unless God takes that word and by his Holy Spirit does something with it. Paul would say that we plant and that we water, that, that, that he planted Apollos waters, that, that we, we spread the seed, that, we, um, that we, we give this word out. But he says that only God brings forth the increase, 1 Corinthians chapter 3. George Hutchinson, a, a Puritan, uh, wrote, he said, the men, of the, the men of the world are very corrupt and ill-principled in reference to the doctrine of the gospel and have very many mountains standing in the way thereof. Yet, the Spirit of the Lord is an effectual convincer where he pleaseth to work. Praise God, I am looking over many whom the Spirit said, I'm going to convince you. See, that's what happened. God's Spirit said, I'm going to take that word and I'm going to convince you. That Jesus is the Son of God. That he came to pay for your sins and grant you eternal life. To change you, to take out that old man and to grant you a new man, a new way of living. The Holy Spirit has come upon you and taken that word and made it true to you and to your heart. So here's this, Jesus wants to open up a little bit about what this means that he convicts the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment, 9, 10, and 11. Describe this for us. He says of sin, conviction of sin, because they do not believe me, in verse 9. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, Romans 3, 23. And nobody believes that in their spiritually dead state, they, they don't believe that they've fallen short. They walk around, as it says in Ephesians 2, like dead men walking. They're unresponsive, completely unresponsive, or the response is nothing but hatred towards the God of truth. That's Ephesians 2. No one believes that they need a Savior, and so no one believes that Jesus is the Savior until the Spirit convinces them of such by granting them faith. Now, when I say that, I know that you know that there are many people who are seeking after religious experiences, who are, who are seeking after help, spiritual help. But, but there isn't anyone who believes, uh, outside of the work of the Holy Spirit, that they can't search for righteousness, that they can't search for truth, that, that it would be impossible for them to be brought face to face to truth itself, and they would choose it. <laughs> Because there's nobody who believes that they wouldn't do that, that, that they wouldn't be able to do that. That's why they're searching. People are searching for truth because they believe that if they found it, they could embrace it. But they can't. And we come up all over the human race. We come up with all kinds of ideas about how we can be made right, how we can be good, how we can take care of this shame and this guilt that we do feel. How we can experience some kind of sense of, of, of eternity because eternity has been placed in our hearts. But we're disconnected from it somehow. But we can't do that because we're dead in our sins. Unresponsive to the truth. Unresponsive to Christ. Unless the Spirit comes and convicts us of sin because we won't believe in Him. Because we don't believe in Him. And so the Spirit convinces us, in fact, that we must believe upon Christ, that we must fall upon Christ. 
And so I, I think, in essence, it's really this convinced of their sin of unbelief, of unbelief in the Savior. And convicted or convinced of righteousness because I go to my Father and you see me no more, verse 10. Um, when he's referring to uh, you not seeing him anymore, again, that's referring to his departure, to his ascension, to his now enthronement. Jesus now sits on the throne of righteousness. And that righteousness is imputed to his elect by means of the Holy Spirit, making the risen Christ our justification. Romans 1.4, Jesus is declared to be the Son of God with power according to the Spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead and is our justification. Romans 5.8-10, but God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having been justified, there's the word righteous, same word, those who have been righteous, justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. For if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. Being righteous, being convicted of righteousness is to have your eyes opened and see Christ is my righteousness. Christ is my only righteousness because he departed. He died for my sins and he is gone and is now at the right hand of God the Father. And in Romans 5, he continues, For as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners, so also by one man's obedience many will be made righteous. Convinced and convicted of the righteousness that is Jesus Christ. The Spirit not only convicts us of our sin and therefore our lack of any righteousness of our own, but then convinces us that Christ's righteousness is ours so that we stand before God justified. Now, if that sounds like a whole bunch of words and how am I to understand all of it? Well, listen, listen. Here's what the Word of God says. Romans 4, I'm going to start at verse 25. Who was delivered up, Jesus, who was delivered up because of our offenses and was raised because of our justification. So Paul wants you to see that that he's delivered up for you, that is for your offenses, your sins, and he's raised for your justification. You are united to Christ in his death and and his resurrection. He goes on, therefore, having been justified by faith, what do we get? We have peace with God. Through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have access by faith into this grace in which we stand and rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Being united to Christ through his death and his resurrection and in his death and resurrection, we are reconciled, made friends again, made right with God. We have peace with him and rejoice being set right with God. That's what the word, so Paul's word is teaching you. Romans 8.1 says, There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, who do not walk according to the flesh, listen, but according to the Spirit. There's therefore now no condemnation. Paul's going to write in the Word for you to hear. Because you're convicted of your sin. And we're oftentimes convicted of our sin throughout uh, as we're walking with the Lord. We need to be reminded regularly. We come and and lay our, our sins before God. We confess our sins. And he's righteous and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. There's, brothers and sisters, there's no condemnation. None for those who are in Christ Jesus. Who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. And then in Romans 8, 29 and 30, for whom he foreknew... 
he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. There'd be many of us walking in a resurrected life. Moreover, whom he predestined, these he also called, um, whom he called, these he also justified, that's righteous, and whom he justified, these he also glorified. And so he convicts us of what righteousness really is of where it really is, of who it really is, and turns us to that. Convicts us of sin, of righteousness, and then of judgment, verse 11, because the ruler of this world is judged. The work on the cross also then marked the end of the rule of Satan upon the world. The cross marked the end of the rule of Satan upon this world. The cross was not a sign of defeat. The cross is a sign of victory. John 12, 31, Jesus said, Now is the judgment of this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. Colossians 2, 15, Paul says, Having disarmed principalities and powers um, in his death on the cross, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it. This is another reason why you can understand the world is is not the same as it was before Christ's victorious work on the cross. The, The world is not under the rule of Satan in any way like it was during the time Uh, before Christ came, before Christ pulled him down, cast him down, set him down from his throne. And when someone is converted, they are freed. They're freed from the slavery to sin that they once were, were born in, in Adam, by nature. They're freed from this slavery to sin, Romans 6, 17 and 18. Jesus came, John writes, to destroy the devil's work. 1 John 3, 8. He who sins is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. For this purpose, the Son of God was manifested, that he might destroy the works of the devil. The devil's works and the devil are being destroyed. He died to destroy the devil, Hebrews 2, 14. The devil was the prince of this world, was. But he was judged on the cross, thrown down from his place of rule, and left to wander about like a roaring lion. Satan's name means accuser. And the primary role, his primary role is that of accusing, of accusing God, of accusing truth, of accusing you, of accusing reality, of not being reality. That's what Satan does. But no one can bring a charge against God's elect, we are told, Romans 8.33. No one, not even the accuser. We stand, we stand in, under no condemnation and no accusation from the devil. He cannot accuse you. That's different than the world was. Because we have been brought into this reconciled, rejoicing um, work of the cross, reconciled, reconciled to God. We are saved by grace alone, not by any works. So he can't point to any of your works. When, when Satan points to one of your works, <coughs> you could just agree with him. Yeah, that was a really bad work over there. That was really imperfect. That was really sinful. But I wasn't saved by those works. I'm saved by grace alone. No accusations. We're saved by grace alone. And so the devil is the one left judged. Convinced of Satan's false accusations, when found, we're found 
in Christ's righteousness instead, convinced of being set free from all sin. So that's what the Spirit does. Now here's where I think it, the, 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 it, a turn is going to take in, in terms of what we oftentimes think of what Jesus meant when he said, I will be sending the Spirit to you who will convince the world, who will convict the world of sin, righteousness, of judgment. And in these verses now, verse 12 and 13, he says, I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. However, when he, the spirit of truth, has come, he will guide you into all truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will tell you things to come. Be very careful with those two verses, not to immediately apply them here to your circumstances and to, and to this generation. There is application, but if you start there, you're going to have a misunderstanding of what Jesus meant and a misunderstanding of the work of the Holy Spirit, okay? I want you to hear these verses again being spoken to the apostles in time and space. Listen again. To them, he says, I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. However, when he, the spirit of truth, has come, he will guide you into all truth, all truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will tell you things to come. Now, if, you, if you're looking at my notes at all, I want you to look back on the three paragraphs that I just went through. Conviction of sin, of righteousness, and of judgment. And I want you to notice how many sentences have multiple verses from the New Testament in them. Remember when I said to you at one point, I said, These sound, this, I'm, everything I'm sounding is, is kind of hard to grab onto. Well, look at me at the word right? You need the word to understand. Every paragraph, almost every sentence in my, in my notes up here is backed up by the word of God. The New Testament, you have to think about this for a moment. When Jesus says these words in roughly 30 AD, in less than 40 years, the entire New Testament will be written. Okay? In less than 40 years, all of the canon of scripture will be completed. In AD 30, all you have is the Old Testament. In AD 68 or so, you got it all. 38, 39 years, the entire New Testament is completed. Canon of Scripture is closed. Jesus says, I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. However, when the Spirit, when He, the Spirit of truth, has come, He will guide you, y'all, you apostles there, into all truth. The word of God, Paul writes to Timothy, is spirit-breathed. This is all scripture is given by inspiration of God. It means literally, it means spirit-breathed. Inspiration of God. And so the Bible that you hold in your hand, if you're holding a Bible, the Bible that you hold in your hand, when you hold it, <clears throat> is the fulfillment of these verses. The Bible is the fulfillment of the promise that the Holy Spirit would come to the apostles and guide them into all truth. Give them all that they needed to address, be able to address what would, what would happen for centuries, the teachings necessary for the church. The Spirit now accompanies this word when it is read or preached according to his will. For as it says in, um, in chapter 3, um, he blows wherever he wishes like the wind. 
And this word is used by him like a spiritual knife. So this word is read or preached, and the Spirit does with it what he wants. The Spirit has constant control of the word of God. And when Jesus was speaking to Nicodemus, he says, you, you must be born again, but you're going to be born by the Spirit, and I'm, I, I, you can't control him. He blows wherever he wishes. He does whatever he wishes. But he does whatever he wishes with the word of God. Isaiah tells us that, that the word of God never returns void. It always accomplishes exactly what God wants to accomplish. So when the word of God is read or preached or prayed or meditated over, shared, God's spirit does what God's spirit wants to do. And nothing can stop him. Nothing can stop him at all. So we, we, we still, are, we, we still uh, receive the benefits of this Spirit-inspired word. That's what Paul's saying to Timothy. He's not saying, well, the Spirit came um, and inspired a whole bunch of words to be put on, on, on paper, and then, woof, off he went. No, he's, he's in the Word. He's with the Word. He accompanies the Word. He does his work with the Word. Um, Paul, he is Paul who wrote Hebrews, but whoever wrote Hebrews said that, that, that the, uh, the word of God is, is like this knife that cuts you open, like this surgical knife that can cut you open perfectly, even to the separation of, of bone and marrow, of, of, of your soul and spirit, of it, it, making clear before God and you even the intentions of your heart. Um, are you confused why you think the things that you do? Are you confused about the temptations that you continue to struggle with? Are you confused um, in trying to understand God's sovereignty in the midst of your life and the trials and tribulations and difficulties? Are, are, do you, are you having a hard time? God's word opens up, opens you up, and reveals you according to God's word, teaches, instructs, encourages, rebukes, admonishes, changes you. This word that was given through the apostles, to all of the church. This is the Holy Spirit still at work. Preachers use the word, or rather, maybe better to say this, the Spirit uses the preacher to build up and to build upon the foundation laid by the apostles. You could look later at Ephesians 2.20 and 4.11 through 16. God gave the apostles and prophets there, laying the foundation, Jesus Christ, the chief cornerstone, the word by which the foundation, all of the canon of scripture has been laid out. And then upon that, the teachers and preachers build upon that foundation. They lay no new foundation. They, they have no new word, no fresh word from the Spirit. They build by means of the Spirit upon the foundation of the very word that has been given to us. That word of God. That's what's going on. And, and, and for some, some think that's not enough. We need a new and a fresh word. No, we need to give ourselves to this word there's so much here for you, for your soul, for your heart, for your mind, for your circumstances, for your life. God's Spirit gave it to you. What are you supposed to do with it? Close it up, put it on your bookshelf and tell people, yeah, I got a Bible and I probably should be reading it more. One of the favorite um, evangelical statements when asked, are you spending time in the Bible? Yeah, I probably should spend some more. I've yet to talk to somebody who said, how, how are you doing your Bible reading? Going, I'm going, great, man. That's just, I'm just taking it all in. It's one, actually, there's been a couple of times. But very rarely, very rarely do I hear somebody say, the Spirit of God is right here. 
And I'm not leaving until I understand more, until he shows me more, until I have comfort more, until I have instruction more, until I get it more. We want a fresh word from the Spirit over here. <laughs> and the Spirit is saying, would you come to me? That's why I gave these words. Here I am. Here I am. Let me do my fine work, perfect work in you. The Spirit opens our eyes to this body of doctrine and enables us increasingly to embrace it and to experience its power. Um, turn with me to Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1. Paul spends the first 13 verses, first 14 verses, talking about the, this sovereign work of God in his election, the sovereign work of Jesus in his redemption, the sovereign work of the Holy Spirit in his sealing and providing a guarantee for your salvation. It's thick theology. Paul stops, verse 15. Therefore, I also, after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and your love for all the saints, do not cease to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. You don't need more Holy Spirit. You need more knowledge of him of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit that you have. Verse 18, the eyes of your understanding being enlightened that you may know what is the hope of his calling and what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints and what is the exceedingness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his mighty power, the same power that he used to raise Christ from the dead. I don't think it's wrong to pray for more power, but... Probably more important is to pray for more knowledge of the power that you have. More knowledge of the power of God by his Holy Spirit that is at work in you. The more power, more knowledge and revelation and enlightenment of the strength that you have been given in Christ to say no to sin. To say yes to Christ and to walk faithfully for him full of joy in the midst of all that life has given to you. Paul, that's, that's what his prayer is. That you would have this kind of knowledge of all that Jesus has done for you. Of all that the Father promised. Of all that the Spirit is doing in you. The word also then he says in verse, uh, in, in, in the end back in John. Sorry, I'm jumping up and down here. I knew I was going to get a little excited about this. And in the end of verse 13 he also says, he will tell you of things to come. He will tell you of things to come. And, and I, don't, I don't believe, I don't, I, I don't want to rule out God um, doing all kinds of things by his Holy Spirit. But primarily, I believe what he's speaking of to, to the apostles was their instruction that they would be giving, particularly to the Christians, to not be in Jerusalem in and around 70 AD, because that's when it was all coming down. And the prophecies of the destruction of the temple and the end of the old, of, of the old covenant um, practices was, was, was talked about all through those uh, 40 years leading up to it. Josephus tells us that there were, the Christians had fled Jerusalem before the final siege, before the final um, encircling of Rome um, over uh, Jerusalem. 
So the word teaches of, of things to come, and I think also of the final, uh, of the final coming of the Lord Jesus Christ um, as well. But, but primarily, I think he's talking to them that there are going to be things to come that I'm going to tell you that you need to know because you need to tell the Christians, you need to tell people of this, especially as they go under, undergo persecution from the Jews. And then finally, in verse 14 and 15, he will glorify me, the Spirit, for he will take of what is mine and declare it to you. All things that the Father has are mine. Therefore, I said that he will take of mine and declare it to you. The purpose of the Spirit is to point people to Christ. So the Spirit is like the bright floodlights over a pitch black field. The floodlights are not there to be looked at. The floodlights are not trying to get your attention. The floodlights are not trying to have you turn and gaze upon them. You do that, you won't be able to see anything. The floodlights exist so that you might see the field. Misinterpreting the pas- this passage leads some to look at the light, to try to look at the Holy Spirit or look for the Holy Spirit in the wrong kind of way, rather than, uh, than looking to see what the Holy Spirit is revealing to you, where he's pointing you towards, what he's showing you, like lights. So rather than looking for a a new word from the Spirit and neglecting the very word that has been given, we have been granted the light to see from the Spirit what He has given to us in His Word. The Spirit works for the glory of Christ. The Spirit works for the glory of Christ. He does not work for His own glory, nor for the honor of man. He may inspire, um, I'm sorry, nor nor for the honor of man that that He may inspire. He he seals us and is our guarantee and all to the praise of the gracious glory of God the Father who has done this work through Jesus Christ. So, I think this is is an important passage in this farewell discourse that Jesus gives about the power that the Spirit is going to bring to those apostles upon His departure and then through the apostles to the church by the giving of the word to all of us. A Spirit-inspired, empowered word. The result of the Spirit's coming to the apostles is the Bible held in your hands. That same Spirit testifies to you personally, as well as to the world generally, over the truth of its proclamation. That same Spirit has taken the word and transformed millions of lives over the centuries, think of it, and continues to do so today. It is this spirit who testifies to our spirit that we are also children of God, Romans 8, 16, and who then leads us in our fruit-bearing walk, Galatians 5, and all to the boast in Christ alone. Paul would write in, in Galatians six fourteen. but God forbid that I should boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Paul sought no glory for himself. His spirit-empowered preaching um, led, the, led, led the way for the taking down of the Roman Empire. But Paul would claim no glory, all glory to Christ. Oh, that he might convict and convince you to such an end. And having done so, convict and convince you all the more. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the convicting, convincing work of the Holy Spirit for that work that goes on in our lives and in our hearts. We do long to see this great convincing work, his saving work, more and more in our world today. Do so among us. 
Do so among our loved ones. Do so in our family. Do so among our coworkers and friends. We lift names before you, and we ask that you would do so to the glory of Jesus, our Savior and Lord. Amen. Amen. Let's stand and respond. We'll sing number 399.